Good morning, very warm welcome to you. My name's Ed, if you do not know me, and I lead the church, as Hannah said, with Hannah. Um, and you're very welcome if this is your first time here. We are halfway through a series on Colossians, Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, and I am kind of wrapping up his introduction to that letter. So he's begun by giving thanks to God for this new church that um, uh, God has, through Jesus, chosen. And he talks about how he's chosen the whole world, reconciled and redeemed and united through Jesus. All borders and divisions find their end in and under him, which um, Hannah spoke about brilliantly a couple of weeks ago. And then as the introduction proceeds, Paul kind of finds himself in even more of a froth of spiritual enthusiasm, and he sort of bursts into this uh, hymn of praise about this Jesus that he has started to talk about, and he says exactly who he is and what he's done. He is the image of the invisible God. So no longer do we need to question what God looks like because in Jesus, God has made him completely known to us. And then he is not just that, he is also the supreme being of the universe. Everything is under him. He is the one under which all creation um, is uh, placed. And therefore, he is not one God amongst many. He is the true, real thing. So do not waste your time on lesser gods, for the only true, supreme, real thing is Jesus, as Alice then spoke brilliantly about last week. So, having done all that, he ends his introduction by introducing himself and the purpose of his letter. So let me read that to you. This is chapter 1, verse 24. Now, I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Just a quick... in. Um, a little bit here. No one really knows what this means. Uh, but what it definitely doesn't mean is that Christ's um, death on the cross was not sufficient. Okay? Good. I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's, in regard to Christ's afflictions. It's probably Paul saying, I am sharing in some of the, some of the suffering that Jesus um, experienced, um, and I count it as uh, something to rejoice in. Anyway, for the sake of his body, which is the church. Don't worry about that. Just leave that alone. I've become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but it is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom all hidden, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this, that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. And here, the two key verses. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, 
rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. So this section kind of serves as a link between here is the theology of what Jesus has done, and then here is how we live our lives as a result of that, which kind of carries on for the rest of the chapter. Now, whether consciously or subconsciously, I think it is quite common for people to believe that this is how the Christian life works. God's grace saved you, and now it's up to you. So he may help with you now and again if he's feeling generous. He may give you a helping hand, but basically the responsibility is on you. So thank God for Jesus saving you, giving himself up whilst we were still sinners. He died for us. Thank you. But now the responsibility on you is huge to live a good godly life in response to what he has done. And when this reasoning is pushed a bit further, the implications are that if we don't keep our side of the bargain, then God will be very displeased with us. And in fact, he may withdraw that salvation bit from us as well. So big responsibility, probably something to be worried about. At our Alpha group on Wednesday, a number of people who were brought up as Christians um, were kind of vividly recalling the fear that they lived under as children because they had been taught that at any moment, any moment, Jesus may well come down, swoop up all the ones that he really likes, the really good ones, and then everyone else will be left, even if they are Christians, they'll be left here for some tribulation and pain, and then he may come and get them as well, but you never know. And you're living there wondering with whether when you get back from school, whether your mum and dad have actually just been whisked away into the rapture. Now, this isn't really necessarily the context um, to delve into the minefield of what happens when Jesus returns, other than to say a few things that I'd like to say. This is just from my point of view. Tribulation? Nope. Dispensationalism? Nope. Rapture? Almost definitely, 100%, categorically, big fat zero, based on a very poor 19th century translation and then interpretation of one text that has now been described as heresy by all mainline denominations, a big fat legit nope. And by the way, if you've never heard of those terms or you don't know what they mean, count yourself very lucky. <laughs> you have been saved huge amounts of anguish and pain and wasted time. As a quick aside, um, the two texts that are most often talked about with relation to this are at the end of Matthew's Gospel and uh, Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. And they are also, as it happens, the two texts that categorically say this about Jesus' return. No one knows. That's what they say. And it's not just Paul speaking, it is also Jesus speaking. No one knows. So, predictions about when and in what way and how many hours and how many days. This is a mugs game. Leave it alone. Let's instead concentrate on what we can and we do know. There's a um, non-profit uh, organization in the UK called Christian Aid. I guess it's a bit like the Red Cross. They do a lot of humanitarian work um, in developing nations. And their strapline, I have loved their strapline always, their strapline is this, Christian Aid, we believe in life before death. I think that's great. I wish I'd thought of it. If we're going to worry about something, let's not worry about the future. No one knows. 
let's not worry about life or death, life after death, because what we do know is that Jesus has defeated it and it no longer has a hold on us. Let's worry about now, life before death. But in fact, let's not worry about that either, shall we? Or about anything at all, in fact. Let us not worry. Because actually, anything that induces fear or worry in us is not of God. In fact, this is quite a good litmus test to live your life by. If something, even quasi-Christian teaching, makes you very, very worried or scared about life, it is not from God. So you can just go, great, I forget that. The most often repeated command throughout the whole Bible is, do not be afraid. Do not fear, do not worry. In Jesus' kingdom, there is no anxiety, no worry, no dread, or no fear. His perfect love casts it all out. On the cross, he destroys it all. So do not make a mockery of what Jesus has done by going, oh, actually, I think I should be a bit scared. He's killed it. So one thing that we can be sure, if we're worrying about anything, our eternal salvation, whether God is pleased with us, whether he loves us, whether we can pull off these trousers and this t-shirt, or does it just look at, like a sailor to you? <laughs> if we're worrying about anything at all, it's not from God. Something has gone wrong. Because Jesus and fear cannot coexist. But let's return to the original point. The belief that Jesus saves us and now it's up to us. Paul, here in Colossians, and in fact throughout his writings and throughout the New Testament, says, no, that is not the case. Now, obviously, our wills are involved in our Christian life as they are involved in all aspects of life. We have the ability to participate or to not participate in the process of becoming more like Jesus. But ultimately, maturity in the Christian life is something imparted to us from him, not something we create in ourselves by ourselves. Firstly, we will only develop the character of who we're meant to be because of Christ in us. Chapter 1, verse 27. The hope of glory. This is Paul's shorthand way of saying becoming fully Christ-like. The hope of glory is not dependent on us proving ourselves to Christ. It is dependent on him already having made his dwelling in us. Christ in you. That is the hope of glory. Secondly, we will only do what we're capable of doing because of Christ in us. Chapter 1, verse 29, Paul is working to proclaim the gospel not in his own strength, but in all the energy that Christ so powerfully works in him. And thirdly, we will only gain the depths of understanding and knowledge of life because of Christ in us. Chapter 2, verse 2, it is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So, as Paul summarizes at the end of this section, verse 6 and 7 of chapter 2, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live lives in him, rooted and built up in him. Jesus is not just the means by which we enter the kingdom of God, he is also the means by which we grow in the kingdom of God. So rather than Jesus saved you 
and now it's up to you. Let me say this very clearly. This is the correct formulation of our faith. Jesus saved you, and now it's up to him. Uh, yesterday, the uh, school that our kids go to had a um, kind of all-day, hours and hours of um, festival fun, kind of bounce houses and face painting and cake walks and um, loud music and lots of kind of festival-y things. And whilst I was dragging uh, my children around, um, well, our children around, uh, Hannah was um, uh, kind of doing the cake stall thing. Lots and lots of cakes and various kind of snotty children with undefined stuff under their fingernails, kind of prodding cakes, holding cakes, tasting cakes, smashing cakes. And um, the whole thing, in my mind, should have been a living hell. <laughs> These are the sorts of things that I cannot stand. But as I was walking around, I was thinking, this is really, why am I having fun? I don't understand why I am having fun, but I am having fun. And all the children are having fun too, and actually all the adults are having fun. Everyone seems to have a smile on their face. This is really good. And I realized the more time I spent there, it's because we care. We actually really care about that school. We are invested in that school, and we want, therefore, the school to do well. And so we are throwing ourselves in it, and we're actually enjoying it, and we're actually giving money to it, and we're raising money. And this is great, because when you care about something, you want to see it succeed. Ask any venture capitalist, they will more than likely tell you that they will invest in things because they've researched them, and once they've invested in them, they're not just going to go, oh, great, I hope it works. They are going to give themselves to it to make sure it does because they care about it, because they want to back winners. Now, us, you, me, and the entire human race, the problem about us is we're not a very good bet. We're more than likely going to let everyone down, aren't we? Or at least some people down. We will mess up. And yet, the God of the universe bets everything on us, on you. He bets himself to death on you because he believes in you. He cares so much about you that he gives himself for you, knowing full well that you're probably going to let him down. In fact, you have already just now. Wouldn't it be idiotic of the king of heaven, having done that, to then go, right, now you're on your own, and I might withdraw my funding if you stop doing what you're supposed to do? Wouldn't it be idiotic of him not to go, I have done everything to win you, I have done everything to save you, everything to set you right with me, and now, surely, what he would want to do is go, and I want to see you succeed, and I am going to place myself in you so that you do. I am here to help you do what you're supposed to do. Jesus is like the ark reactor that sits on Tony Stark's chest in Iron Man. He is not just the power which saves us from death to life, but he is the power that equips us to live this new life. 
So it's actually impossible to separate the Christian gospel from the Christian life and from Christian ethics. You cannot separate them. They are the same thing. You cannot have one without the other. And it's why conversion is both a once and for all act that is finished and an ongoing process for the rest of our lives. Impossible to get our heads around. And yet that is the nature of our experience of life with Jesus. I talk to um, lots of people, obviously, as part of my job. And what I've often heard from those who are brought up as Christians or who've always been in church... Often they will say, not everyone, but some of them will say this, I just wish I had had a massive conversion story of where maybe I'd been a murderer or perhaps I'd been like a terrible addict or um, um, actually most commonly, I wish I had been some sort of Lothario uh, who had had uh, incredible sexual encounters throughout the world and then suddenly I have this dramatic experience of becoming a Christian and everything's changed but you know I've got a past <laughs> and the past is being a Lothario let's just remember that often people say that I can understand that but leaving aside the fact that it's probably not wise to trivialize the negative ongoing effects that actually a highly destructive experience of life can have even after we become Christians. And um, leaving aside the fact that it's precisely actually these things that can make um, fully entering into all that God has got for us actually so difficult. The Christian life is actually, leaving aside those things, the Christian life is actually not about looking back but looking forward all the time. We are all on a journey towards maturity. And I would encourage you, therefore, not to be concerned so much with how you reached this point in your life, how you got to where you are now, but where you are going from here. What's next on the road? It's also, and I always kind of chuckle at this, it's also why um, when people say, oh, I just want to get back to my first love, my first love of Jesus, that's what I want to get back to. When I was really on fire for Jesus, and it was just so pure, I want to get back to my first love. I always chuckle about that. You can't. It was your first love. It's been and gone. It's done. It's like when you get married to someone. They can do no wrong for the first little bit. They are amazing because they're glorious, and then you actually find out, no, they're not. <laughs> We can be infatuated, but actually it's much more about where we are now and what's happening to us now. If you consider your teenage self, I'm sure love and life were relatively simple compared to what they are now, but also you had terrible dress sense and you didn't really know anything. Now who you are is who you are. So the experience of God is necessarily going to be different but there's no point harking back. Now, let us see what is in front of us. So, you're a Christian if you're a Christian. You'll know. If you're not a Christian, that's fine. You can become a Christian when any time you like. But if you're a Christian, you'll know you're a Christian. I'm a Christian. Good. So now that you're a Christian, let's carry on. And let's carry on in these three ways. Carry on with the process of chapter 2, verse 2, receiving the full riches of complete understanding that comes from Christ living in you. 
what we can know about Jesus, what we can know about ourselves and the world and his kingdom, is infinite because he is infinite. So we never arrive. There is always more to get from him. When you became a Christian, you didn't suddenly have a light bulb moment and suddenly, oh, I know everything about it. Oh, by the way, guys, I know everything about everything. That didn't happen, obviously. This is a lifelong process of discovering truth. There was an um, extremely influential uh, kind of evangelical uh, scholar, writer in the UK, and he was sort of the go-to for uh, conservative um, theology, really. Every evangelical uh, pastor in the UK would have read his books and gone, oh, I wonder what I think about something. Oh, he will tell me. And uh, he died a few years ago. But what was interesting, this sort of bastion of um, conservative evangelicalism, was how his thought really developed over time, particularly towards the end of his life. People, people who wanted him to be, you know, stay where you are, found him to be a little bit scary because he started changing his minds on things like hell and women in ordination and uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in, um, after the Bible. He changed his thoughts about these things. To me, that speaks of someone who knows we have not arrived yet, that God continually can speak to us. And right at the end of his life, he was interviewed, and someone asked him, what do you think about the evangelical church in this country, expecting him to say, well, with all these secularists coming against us, we have stood firm, and we have stood firm, and that's what I'm pleased about. And what he actually said was, we forgot the poor. We have forgotten the poor. And I wish I could have my time back so that we could talk more about the poor. Because we've become so obsessed with sound theology that we've forgotten the poor. That is an example to us all. I'm not saying that we need to change from one to another or from somewhere to somewhere. I'm saying we need to have the humility and the openness to have our minds changed by the Jesus who lives inside us. So will that mean for some of us who have grown up with defective experiences, defective teaching from church, that we will need to ditch quite a lot of that? Absolutely. I would ditch it as fast as you possibly can. Anything that is not of Jesus. And allow him to replace it with his goodness and his truth as he promises to do. Secondly, we need to carry on the process of living our lives in him, rooted and built up in him. This is the other side of the coin. So I met with a, another pastor who was um, brought up in the evangelical church, very conservative, and then he sort of um, rejected that, um, didn't like it, and now leads an amazing church uh, in this city that does a lot of work um, uh, with social justice, uh, in politics, uh, in serving the poor in this city. And he's a very nice guy, and he's doing great. And we were chatting about uh, life. And just sort of offhandedly, I said, I felt an um, incredible sense of Jesus' love at, at this moment, and that he was really speaking to me. And this guy just sort of stopped and said, wow, a personal experience of Jesus. I haven't had one of those for years and years and years. It was so sad to be leading a church, but to not really be connected to Jesus. So sad.
Jesus is the God of our understanding and thoughts and beliefs, but he is also the God of our lived out experience. And so to limit him in any way is to limit our experience of life. And so for many of us, particularly if you've been brought up with a more kind of heady intellectual doctrine-based experience of God, or it's been purely about morals and living a right way, we need to actually have the courage, as Hannah was talking about, to open ourselves to actually experiencing Jesus' love for us, actually experiencing his acceptance of us. Now, for some, this is going to take a long time because it's a bit scary to open ourselves, or we just don't know how to open ourselves. Some people, when you say, open yourself, you go, I do not know what you mean. What do you mean? But the more we can actually allow him to touch our emotions, to touch the pain that we carry around with ourselves, to meet us in our experience of shame or of guilt, of the things that we're dragging around with us, I often, I, if I could um, invent one thing, it would be like x-ray glasses, um, but for all the stuff that people have always done. I'd love to do I could just look at you and I could see all the stuff that you've done. It would be amazing. Uh, but the reality is, scratch the surface, and all of us are dragging around out to lunch, to our jobs, to our relationships, things that we feel have kind of tied themselves to us that we can't get rid of. To allow Jesus into those things is the starting point for actually feeling forgiven. Actually knowing ourselves to be forgiven. Not in our heads. Not as an intellectual um, going upness. I'm very tired but as an actual experience in our hearts. And finally, carry on the process of contending with all the energy, verse 29, of Christ so powerfully working in us. Be empowered by him to fulfill your purposes in the world, but don't do it in your own strength. Um, I'm going to end with this. But Paul, I think quite understandably, gets a bit of a bad rap, doesn't he? On the one hand, his theology is very heady and it's difficult to actually work out what he's saying sometimes and it's all couched in lots of stuff and he seems to go on tangents, etc. So his theology is difficult. And then his ethics, because we don't always understand the uh, cultural situation in which he's speaking to, can seem really harsh and unkind and legalistic. Um, and so f- for various reasons, people go, I, I'm not like, I don't like Paul. But one thing we don't actually concentrate much on is Paul, the pastor, who really cares. But here in this passage, this is what we see from him, is actually deep care. He's suffering probably in prison for the sake of all the people around the world, including the Colossians, who he hasn't even met yet. He is suffering for them, and he's also rejoicing in his suffering, and he is thanking God for them, and he is encouraging them, and he is praying for them, and he is writing a letter to them, and he is teaching them, and he's basically showing them that I care. I care about you, and I want you to succeed, and I want you to know that I've got your back. If life is a journey, and if the Christian life is a journey, we need people who've got our backs. We really do. 
I am... Um, I think this is a personality thing, but I'm not a great friend. I'm just not. Uh, I'm getting better, but I'm not a brilliant friend. I'm very good at being interested in people who are right in front of me. So as soon as I meet new people, very interested in new people. But for whatever reason, I think it's a short attention span. I'm bad at keeping up with long-term friends. I'm not trying to excuse this. Uh, I'm not trying to say that's why I've been awful. I'm just saying this is a bit what I'm like. I'm trying to get better. Pray for my wife. It's just uh, so difficult. But when my friends who are good friends, and I, for some reason, they stick with me, do out of nowhere say, um, oh, by the way, I've been praying for you. Or I was listening to your talk, and I just thought, um, I'm so pleased for how it's going. Or I'm really proud of you. Or I really missed you. And they do this. Thank you, Shane. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, other Matt. It touches me at such a deep level that people would really care, that people have got my back. And we need those people in our lives to get through this life, to have people who care about us, who, when things are great, will rejoice with us. Have you ever been to a party by yourself? It's not that fun. When you've got friends around, it's much funner. And when things are terrible, to have people around us who will be able to be there, shoulder to cry on, who will um, understand what's going on for us. We need people. Paul is that person. We need those people in our lives. We need to be those people. It's why city groups are so important. It's why Alpha is so important. It's why actually not just coming to church and then going, okay, that's it, I'm done, is so important. To have people who have our backs. Be people who have got other people's backs. Good, good. So for everyone, the process of maturing is going to be different. It's affected by our personalities, it's affected by our experiences, it's affected by our circumstances. But it is always by the same means. Christ in you. It is up to him. We've just got to let him. Let him shine. It's why we emphasize so much praying for people in the power of the Spirit here. Now, there's no magic into it. There's loads of ways in which we can allow Christ to shine. We've just found this the easiest way. And what we're asking people to do is to come here to try and open themselves as best they can to the Holy Spirit and ask him to pour himself into us and fire up the burners, fire up that arc reactor so that we burn brightly. Everyone has the Spirit. If you're a Christian, you've got the Spirit. But we're asking the Holy Spirit to turn up the heat so that we can know him f more fully, that we can experience him and his love and his goodness more fully, and so that he can empower us to be the people we're supposed to be. That's all we're doing. And that's why people come down here, someone puts a hand on their shoulder, and we just ask um, the Holy Spirit to fill them from their head to their feet. He is overflowing with love and goodness for people. He does not run dry. We leak, we need more of him. That's why we do it. Very simple. Lots of other ways to do it. We like to do it up here at the front. Good.